3. Back to Canada. Two letters await me at my mother's house in Canada, an acceptance envelope from Concordia University, my fallback choice, that contains an invitation into their media studies program to do a master's degree, and a rejection letter from McGill University, my first choice, that tells me they have no one in their communications department able to supervise the African studies focus of my research. I returned to work as an evening researcher at the CBC, with Carolyn as my boss again. She understands I will work only until I move to Montreal to attend Concordia at the end of August. I still take the whole dole that my psychotherapist in Uganda prescribed. Although, I am not having dizzy spells, I live a life of working nights and drugged sleep days. I live with my mom and my sister Karen my brother Robert has gone to live with my dad. I stay on the whole dole until I quietly make another escape, this time to Montreal. A bucket and a basin in the basement. I complete the first year of my master's studies at Concordia, living happily with a couple who are friends of mine, Diana and Alex. When one of my short stories is published in Headlight, a student-run anthology at Concordia, I go to the book launch with two blonde friends, Lisa and Oak. We sit in the campus bar and drink Burrell Blonde Beer micro-brewed in good old Quebec. I talk about my hair. Donna, Lisa begins patiently. You talk so much about hair, why don't you do your thesis on it? I scrunch my eyebrows. Yeah, Donna, Oak agrees. She is an exchange student from Norway and I can hear some of the lilt in her voice. You should do your thesis on hair. Are you too crazy? I almost shout. You actually think I could do my thesis on hair? I decide to do my research on the politics of black hair. But first I want to improve my French. In April, I take the bus from Montreal up to Kikatimi, a Quebecois town, for a five-week French immersion program, with plans to return to Montreal, where I will complete my master's thesis on hair. Before I leave, I argue with myself about what to do with my hair. Kikatimi is not known as a cosmopolitan center. I hear a lot more about it being the heart of separatist politics than a hot spot for good black hair salons. The last thing I am going to do is let some white hairdresser, who has never touched black hair, do anything to my head. And, if I do find one, I wonder whether it would it be as expensive as Jasmine's. Wearing braids seems to be the obvious choice. But I have worn them for years and, frankly, I am sick of the time it takes to put them in and the time it takes to take them out. Canada has a minimum wage, so there is no way I am going to find five braiders to work on my head for three hours for seven dollars as I did in Uganda. I sit on a greyhound bus, a walkman dressing my ears, boping my head to arrested development s natural, when I notice two other black women in the group of anglophones. The first thing I do is check out their hair. One of them has had a relaxer freshly done. The other wears a weave quite badly done. I reach for my black Mac compact and sneak a look at myself. I see fuzzy, black, super curls, twisted and bent into length. I nod my head. This will have to do. When I step off the bus, the guide introduces me to another student, Victoria. Hi, Victoria, I say. I look at her dark green windbreaker and then my eyes straight away look up to her thick brown hair. Nice to meet you, she says with a Newfoundland accent as she shakes my hand. Are you from Labrador? She nods and slips back into the group of other students.
Then I meet a plump older woman with a grey updo and round glasses perched on her nose. You can call me Madame Mayrère, she says in French. She will be my Quebecois mother for five weeks. At the Maison, where we will stay for five weeks, the Quebecois Mayrère shows us around and tells us the rules of the house. I am cool with all the rules except for one. We are not allowed to wash our hair in the shower because it clogs the drain. We have to use a bucket and a basin in the basement. I try not to show my horror as I wonder how I will get my hair clean with only a bucket and a basin. I need running water coursing through my tresses and water shooting out of the shower head massaging my scalp. I don't really care about clogged drains or the world's water shortage. My hair needs to be clean. The next day, French classes start at the Université du Québec à Grave Kikotimi. In the morning, we get a tour of the town and I find what I expect, there are no black beauty shops in sight. I pass the days struggling with my hair, trying to make it look like it has done with fine fingers instead of thick thumbs. I listen to Rico Baggio's freestyle afro-skit for inspiration. I curse myself for not sitting through the ten hours of a braiding session needed to have three weeks of style. And just as I receive the 50th queer look at my hair from a passerby, I see an angel. I am in the mall, walking by Le Chateau, when I spot a black female sales clerk, the first black woman I have seen in Kikotimi. She wears beautiful, colorful extensions. I almost knock over a clothes rack racing up to her. I love your hair, I say in accented French. Thank you, she says in accented English. Where did you get it done? I feel such hope as I look at her. Maybe the black beauty shop of my dreams does exist in Kikotimi and I just don't know about it, a little place, just waiting for my business, a place that will give me the freedom to bite my nails again. I stopped biting my nails because I need the length to scratch my dirty scalp. Week two and I am still not about to brave the bucket and basin in the basement. I got it done in Joan Choir, she says. Joan Choir. At first I think it has the name of a beauty shop but I find out that it has a town outside Kikotimi. I ask the woman if there are any black beauty salons in town and she answers what I already know. She gives me the number for her hairdresser, but I don't know if I can find the time to travel all the way to Joan Choir with the busy schedule I have. The French immersion program at the university is really intensive. I contemplate cancelling a weekend of whitewater rafting so I can't travel to Joan Cryer to get my hair done. Sitting down and listening to Nina Simone sing Black is the color of my true love's hair makes up my mind. It reminds me of a fortune cookie I once got. I keep the little slip of paper posted on my bathroom wall. The first and last love self-love. For far too long I have let my hair be the boss. It is time to take charge of the relationship. Having fun is more important than having some fancy hairstyle to impress other people. I realize how fortunate I am to be able to go whitewater rafting, and with my relaxer free hair I don't have to worry about ruining a pierum. On the bus. Ride up to rafting, I listen to Arrested Development S Natural again. I saw my psychiatrist at Concordia before I left Montreal. I am now down to one milligram of risperidin. I feel good. I play sports in the afternoon but I am not able to hit a ball with a bat. As I have done so many times in the past, I decide to decrease my medication without consulting my doctor. I cut the risperidin down to half a milligram. My Quebecois Mireille and Victoria spend the weekend away, visiting some of my Kikotimi mother's relatives.
other than a teacher from the school, who stays downstairs in the basement, I am alone in the house. I turn on the TV in my room and switch to mush music. A video comes on that gets me dancing. I am high as a kite, flashing around the room, swaying and singing to the dance mix. If I could turn back the hands of time, I wouldn't eat change a single thing. I stop and zero in on those words. I remember. Mom wearing a blue and white checkered bathing suit on the black sandy beach of St. Vincent. Dad shocking Mom in the bathroom. Winning the shiny, red, first place ribbon at Birchmount Stadium as the final runner in the relay. No less angry brown eyes as he read my journal. Noel reaching for my throat in a park near Jack's house. Sitting in business class on the British Airways flight to Uganda and enjoying the movie trading places on my own small TV. My research methods professor at Concordia telling me that my question, whether asking how is more important than why, is brilliant. No, I would not turn back the hands of time. I wander through the house. In the bathroom, I open the medicine cabinet of my Quebecois mirror and contemplate taking all the medication and committing suicide. Maybe my dad is hunting me down right now. Maybe he has come to kick to me. He could be here, in the house. I go downstairs to the basement, where I think he might be hiding, and find no one. The teacher who lives down there has left a note on my Collins Robert French English Dictionary. He is going to be out for the night. So, I really am all by myself in the house. Virginie, the daughter of my Quebecois Mia, who I have only met once, lives next door. I go over to her house. Her children are home and they like me, even in my manic state. Virginie has to go grocery shopping. I go with her. In the store, I think about a show I've seen on television where old people steal the lives of young people. Do you watch The Twilight Zone? I ask Virginie. No, she says. Old people are trying to steal my life, Virginie, I whisper. Quick, we must hide. Virginie pulls me back as I try to hide in the freezer. I stick by her for safety. I push the cart with her children in tow to stay away from the danger. Her children think I am playing a game. When we get home from the grocery store, I call my mother from Virginia's house. Why did you ever marry dad? I shout. Lord, you only knew the man for three months. My head feels as though my brain has been replaced with a brick. My body aches. My heart rockets. And there is no medication to mask the pain. Virginie calls an ambulance that takes me to the hospital in Kikotimi. I roam around in the road at the emergency entrance. Then, I try to hide because I am convinced CBC journalists are after me to cover the story of my breakdown. The head of the French program at Université du Quebec-Gay Grave Kikotimi comes to the hospital and takes me back to the school. They don't know what to do with me there. They try to feed me good food and I do eat the baked chicken but I still think my father is trying to hunt me down and kill me. I do not want to return to my Quebecois Mayreras house. I would not feel safe. My father might find me there. The police come. They take me to the police station and contact my Quebecois Mayreras. When my Quebecois Mayreras arrives, she takes me back to the hospital. This time they admit me. I feel a deep fright. I am so scared. My French isn't he good enough to speak to the doctors who themselves know little English. My goodness they treat crazy people the same all over the world. 
Doctors chase me down the hallway and orderlies lift me off the ground and place me on a gunny. They strap me down. They put a needle in my bum. Ouch! I yelp. Are you trying to puncture my African bum? I ask the doctor. I finally go to sleep. I have not slept in days. My roommates from Montreal get money from my dad to rent a Dodge Caravan. They drive 450 kilometers to Kikatimi to pick me up. I was supposed to stay for five weeks but I last only three. I still get an an accreditation for a three-week course they also offer. Plus, I receive a bilingualism certificate. Back in Montreal, I decide to move out of Diane and Alex's place. I find a small apartment in Notre Dame de Grace, in the West End, for $250 a month. The French immersion course comes in handy. Over the summer, I find transcription work for an ecotourism documentary shot in Costa Rica. The announcer speaks French, the tourists speak English, and the Costa Ricans speak Spanish. I am able to transcribe the French and the English, and phonetically work through the Spanish. I use the same compact laptop that my mother sent to me in Uganda. I spend my breaks smoking with my Quebecois boss, Elaine, who has shoulder length, curly brown hair and light green eyes, and always wears form-fitting green army pants. She tells me she really wants to be a photographer. I encourage her to follow her dream. Elaine helps make one of my own dreams come true. My name appears as a scribe when the ecotourism documentary airs on Discovery Channel International. My dad phones to say he watched the show. I just saw your name on TV, he laughs. Yeah, dad. I smile at hearing his happy voice. That was my work here in the summer. Right oh. At the end of the summer, I smoke alone and think about my research and what to do with it. Master S. When my summer contract with a production company ends, I return to work on my Master S degree. I write a 90-page research paper for my thesis and create a virtual salon with an online community link for my research project on the politics of black hair. My website opens with Betsy as my receptionist and includes uploaded video of my Auntie Ellie's braiding session in Uganda, a resource page, and loaned information from a New York Master S graduate, the only other person that I know of who has done research on the politics of black people's hair. I also start freelance work for Radio Canada International when a friend of mine, Rick Well, introduces me to the executive producer of its flagship show Spectrum. More reasons not to turn back the hands of time come when my advisor, Matt, hires me to teach a communications course at Concordia. I'm so busy online and freelancing for Sai that I bring in a bevy of guest speakers including a Montreal CTV anchor, an Oscar-nominated documentary filmmaker, a reporter and my former boss Elaine to avoid the need for preparing lesson plans. A new guest arrives just about every week. My teaching evaluations are horrid. The students are RIP into me claiming they learned nothing and that I did not teach. I do not remember the last time I took my medication. Just as I am about to defend my thesis, on my 27th birthday, my defense is bumped back. Now Lisa, who gave me the idea to do my research on black hair, will graduate before me. To lighten my sadness, I decide to see the Blair Witch Project. I don't make it to the movie theater. My thoughts race faster down the street than I do and I find myself at McGill. After sitting through an information session about their PhD program, 
I checked myself into a hotel, the most expensive one in Montreal. My room has a king-size bed with cream-colored bedding and a cream-colored headboard. The sitting area has cream-colored antique furniture with dark oak trim. The carpet is fluffy. The closet is big. Enough for six bodies to fit inside. A large TV swivels so that you can view it from both the bedroom and the sitting area. I get bored of crying and leave to ride the bus up Avenue du Parc. On the bus I speak to the sparkling Montreal night sky through a crack in the ceiling escape exit. I rage about the death of my brother Robert after I imagine that a group of witches, one of them someone I work with at Radio Canada, has traveled to Toronto and killed him. God, I will avenge my brother's death. Robert, you are in heaven, but I will bring your murderers to hell. I jump off the bus before the driver has a chance to kick me off and march down Schaberg Street, back to the hotel, where I order their most expensive meal delivered to my room. Afterward, I go downstairs, feeling enormously wealthy in the white hotel bathrobe I snatched from the voluminous closet, to buy some cigarettes at the front desk. What are you doing down here dressed like that? The man at the desk asks. I laugh and ask for the cigarettes. When he pulls out a grand-looking box filled with exotic brands of cigarettes, I laugh again and remember when my father gave me a carton of cigarettes for Christmas in 1998. Did my father send those? I ask in a British accent. The man just shakes his head at me. I do not sleep that night. In the morning, I go down to the large hotel lobby, again in my hotel bathrobe, and expect to be treated like a queen. The manager gets fresh with me then hostile. He orders me out of the hotel. The police and someone from the center's local disservices communautaires arrive. I am taken, once again, to the Royal Victoria Hospital and stay, once again, in the brief therapy unit. Michelle. The environment inside a hospital is hostile. I walk down the hallway on beige tiles that were once white. A Filipino nurse beside me pats my shoulder as she whispers, this is your room. My hospital bed, with white sheets and green flannel, awaits me. Someone on the other side of the drawn grey striped curtain swears. Go in and lie down, the nurse says. Get some sleep. I set my knapsack down on a brown plastic chair close to a plastic nightstand beside the bed. As I lay my head on the pillow, the voice on the other side of the curtain screeches, What the fuck are you doing in here? I ask to be alone in this room. I close my eyes. Hands shake me out of my fetal position. No longer on the other side of the curtain, the woman brings her face close and snarls. I said, get the fuck out of here. Fuck off, bitch, I growl back. Carolyn. A squat Italian woman with short blonde hair stands in the doorway. Just leave her alone. She may fight you. I look at them both. I would. The blonde woman steps inside the doorway. I am Michelle, she says. I am a friend of Caroline. A shorter man, who also looks Italian, follows Michelle into the room. He smiles and comes right to my bedside. I am sorry about all that. I am Richard. Michelle's brother. What is your name? He asks. I stare into Richard's light green eyes. Michelle and I become fast friends and I stay with her when I get out of the hospital. She devises a plan for us to go into business together. She will pay me $50,000 a year and we will make music videos.
For a week, Michelle keeps me inside her apartment in Notre Dame de Grace, an Anglophone suburb in Montreal, watching videos and listening to music. When we go outside, we shop. I spend my own money on her. When we go to the Bellaventure Hotel and have an expensive meal, it is on me. I use my credit card and spend money I do not have. Michelle lures me into thinking I am the one to marry her brother Richard. She tells me that my medications are merely sleeping pills so why take them? I listen to her and stop taking them. Richard is coming, Michelle says. You must get ready. Go to Place Ville Marie and wait for him there. She gives me a shove and I walk briskly to the metro subway. I see the stop for Place Ville Marie before I hear the announcement. There is a long, long pathway with fluorescent lights on the ceiling. They whiz by me as I speed down the path. At the end of the tunnel, I gravitate to a gold-colored seat beside a tall golden post. I sit there. I sit there. And I sit there. I look at my black and white watch and see that it is almost ten. It is getting late and the weather is cold. I walk back through the tunnel and back to the Bellaventure Hotel. Michelle is just returning from the bar when we meet. Let us go to my place, she says when she sees me. I say nothing. I follow Michelle back to her place where we find Michelle's old boyfriend Sean watching videos in the living room and smoking pot. Before I enter the room, I look at Michelle. I need to go home and take my medication. Why? She shouts. They read just sleeping pills. The fear in my stomach forces me out of Michelle's building and onto the street. I go to a payphone and call my friend David. David, I say. Can you pick me up? I'll meet you at the cafe at Laola. Yes, he says. I'll leave right away. Just wait for me if you have to. I walk and walk and walk and finally reach the cafe close to Concordia University's Loyola campus. David lives in Gotenigas. A half hour passes before he arrives. We go back to my place. David's first degree is in pharmacology. He encourages me to take my medication. I want him to spend the night but he has to go back to his girlfriend. Michelle ends up back in the hospital. I stabilize once I start taking my medication regularly, as prescribed. But I do not like the doctor who follows up with me in the outpatient clinic of the Allen Memorial Institute at the Royal Victoria Hospital. The medication he puts me on makes me gain weight, makes me sleep for 15 hours at a stretch and leaves me depressed. I start self-prescribing. I talk to David about how I can get off my medication. In March, I stop. Alan. Sitting on the bed of my one-and-a-half-room studio apartment in Montreal, I hear a knock. I peer through the peephole then open the door. My hands go to the empty pockets of my jeans. Saul, I say. I have nothing to give you. The rent is due, Donna, he shouts. Today. Saul, what can I do? I have no money. I am sorry. You are already five days late, he shouts again. I could throw you out. Then do that. I slam the door in his face. Saul knocks again. The panic in my body forces me to lie down on my bed. The rent is $250. I can't afford it. I sublet my apartment to my Ugandan cousin, Dora, who is in Canada doing her 
PhD in electrical engineering at McGill. I moved back to Toronto. The first day home, after dropping off my bags at my mother's house in Markham, I go to the Lillian H. Smith Library at Spaden Avenue and College Street. I first look for a job in the Toronto Star and then I go to the computer room on the second floor. I type at the speed of a mind on crack and communicate with new and old friends on my online virtual salon community group. I feel someone staring at me and look up. A smooth-skinned man, with a shaved head and a silver hoop pierced through his left ear, looks at me with an odd expression. I look down and continue to type. After a few minutes, I log off and stand to leave. The man follows me down the stairs of the library. When I reach the bottom he finally speaks. What is your name? I step away from the staircase because he stands on the second step and I need to back away just to look into his eyes. He is tall about six foot, seven inches with silky chocolate skin. His voice has a Creole accent and I know right away he is Haitian. Many Haitians live in Montreal. Are you from Montreal? I ask him in French. Yes, he replies in Creole. I go to school here in Toronto. I am a music producer. My name is Alan. I tell him my name and look more closely at him. He wears a black silk shirt and black slacks. His shoes, also black, look recently shined. What school do you go to? Trevor's Institute, he says, in English. Have you heard of it? I nod. You type really fast, he says. I nod. He slumps his shoulders a bit. Can I get your number? I am cautious. Why? He opens his mouth and before he says anything, I smile. I realize what he wants. Okay, I say. I pick a black pen out of my purse and write down my mother's phone number on a page I tear from my journal. Thank you, he says. He looks carefully at the number. I will call you soon. It is Thursday. I hear from Alan on Friday. On Saturday, he picks me up in a white 1996 Honda Civic with really, really low seats. We drive down to the lake and take a walk around Ashbridge's Bay near the beaches. Shortly after I meet Alan, my old friend Diane, who I have known since my Carleton days, helps me get a job on a CBC program called Culture Shock. I will work freelance for them in Toronto, however, the training takes place in Montreal. Alan drives me to the train station. Every day, I check my email for Alan's messages. Alan, Donna, I love you. I miss you. When am I going to see you again? Donna, I can't leave Montreal right now. I'm still working. Aren't you working too? Alan, I can work from anywhere. I am going to come see you. Would this weekend work? I can stay a few days. Donna, yes. It has only been one week since we last saw each other. Alan and I go to a park near my apartment. He stands in front of me and pushes me on the swing. Donna, I have something to tell you, he says. I stare at him. Silence. What is it? I whisper. I drag my feet to stop swinging. Silence. I am married. I stare at him. She is Trinidadian. She needed a visa to come to Canada. Her family paid me $25,000 to marry her. I continue to simply stare at him. I think of the $23,000 of school loans I owe. Well, 
Alan. I sit on the still swing. Thank you for telling me. He stands in front of me with his hands in his pockets. It's just that. I want to marry you, Donna, he says. I just want you to understand that first I would need to get a divorce. I can. She has her papers now. You want to marry me? Yes, very much. Then there is something you should know. He stands quietly and waits. I slide off the swing. I suffer from depression. What? Alan shouts. You are crazy. You mean I want to marry a crazy woman? Oh my god, I think. Thank god I didn't tell him it's really manic depression. Are you taking medication? Yes. What? Alan shouts again. You shouldn't take medication. You know my mom's a nurse and that stuff will kill you. It will kill our baby. Lord, I think, I haven't even agreed to marry this motherfucker, let alone have his kid. We fight every week for the month he has in Montreal. He can't get over the fact that I take medication and he keeps calling me crazy. He insists that I go off my medication, which by this point I have discovered actually helps me. Ironically, his mother is a psychiatric nurse. I am stressed out about my summer job with culture shock. Alan discourages me. He dats all my story ideas for the production company. But strangely he encourages me to start my own internet radio station. He writes a song for me and we make up. Then Alan calls me crazy again and we break up. He is a lousy lover. I am not going to put up with any man who gets off on me but does not he reciprocate. When we argue, Alan shouts constantly and tells me that everything I do is wrong. He says he hates all the black bitches in Canada and he is just going to go to Haiti and find himself a woman there. He is of typical marrying age, I guess, about 32. But when angry he acts like a two-year-old. He is giving me a huge headache so I kick him out of my apartment in the pouring rain. To make sure he has gone, I open my drapes and watch him leave. Days later, I start having regrets. Ivy told all my friends that Alan is the one for me. To save face perhaps, I phone him and try to reconcile. He says he knows I really care about him because I looked out the window when he left. But he turns me down. I am not hurt. I am actually relieved. I just didn't want to be the one to end things. I gave him the decision to make and that was like my present to him. Later on, he changes his mind. He calls for months afterward, but I have call display and I do not answer unwanted calls. After I break up with Alan, I do go off my medication and I have another breakdown. Again, I end up in the brief therapy unit at the Royal Victoria Hospital in Montreal. I leave after three days to return to Toronto and my freelance job for the CBC. The job does not last long. I have a panic attack while on a set and the best advice my boss gives me is to find some little job back in Montreal. I take his advice, in a way. I return to Montreal and maintain some equilibrium with mania, enough to go to convocation at Concordia in November. Eerie, eerie. I have no idea how long I have been walking when I see a light shining from the top of a house on Esplanade Avenue. Ever since I ran away from the dinner table at Mary's two days ago, I have been walking the streets of Montreal, not feeling safe anywhere. Over dinner, Mary talked about us taking a vacation in Mexico. I remember her telling me that she would pay for the trip. Working as a journalist for Radio Canada, 
She makes a lot more money than I do. She also does erotic massage. I am sure her job is more fun than mine, too. I cuss Mary for not letting me stay over at her place. I cannot go home. My janitor is harassing me and my father is looking for me, wanting to kill me. I think they have already killed my cat. I keep seeing images of my cat everywhere. It frightens me. It is late but I keep walking, fast, afraid that something will happen out here, but even more fearful of going home. When I left Mary's, I took a bus to the end of the line, where the female driver screamed at me to get off. Scared, I took a cab to the corner of Avenue du Montreuil and Avenue du Parc, looking for Kim's house, sure that I could find safety there with him. I know Kim from work. We have dated a couple of times. I wandered the whole evening looking for Kim's place. I am convinced that my father put some spell on me through the Haitians in Montreal. There is no doubt he is messing up my mind. Just as I came close to finding Kim's safe house and his safe arms, my father and his evil kind changed the streets of Montreal to look like my hometown Toronto. And I had to start again. Another taxi driver helped me get back to the corner of Montreal and Du Parc. When I realized that he was black Haitian I leapt from the back seat and threw pennies at him in the busy intersection instead of paying. Then, I walked my way back to Mary's house. That walk seemed like a jaunt to the corner store compared to all the walking I've done since. I seemed to reach Mary's in minutes. I rang the bell. I needed to go to the bathroom. No one answered. But I knew she was there. I pissed on her walkway. I was so pissed with Mary. I walk along Esplanade Avenue, drawn by that light at the top of the house. I feel filthy. I have been walking like the killer in the Spike Lee movie Summer of Sam. My thighs are soaked with urine and chaff. I have worn the same clothes for two days. I really need a shower. I walk towards the house. This must be my safe house. From the street, I can hear music and many voices. I have no idea what time it Although I wear a watch, I don't look. I am afraid to know the time. I climb the steps and follow the party sounds up to an apartment at the very top. I ring the doorbell. A light flickers and someone opens the door for me. Music and strange sounds fill my senses. I take a quick look around, locate and then head for the bathroom. I spy a big old-fashioned tub. I want to draw a bath. Thankful I have found a safe place, I take off all my clothes. I want to scrub away at my dirty skin. But first I need to pee. While I sit on the toilet, I see heads with short hair men peek through the open door. They see my clothes tangled around my feet, my toenails uncut, my long brown legs displaying natural off-black tattoos and darker shades of brown, scars from falls off bikes, swings and fences when I was a child. They see that my stomach gently rounds out and leads to my breasts, my neck that my first love told me was long, my face with eyes that I dare not look into in the mirror, and my Grace Jones imitation hairstyle. A curly bush hides my private parts. Someone firmly closes the door. I flush the toilet, step to the bathtub and turn on the taps. The water flows and I slip in. I close my eyes and melt into the heat. My thoughts swirl like the water around my thighs. The bathwater rises high. It reaches my breasts. I try to turn the water off but I cannot. I step up out of the tub and call out to the women I hear on the other side of the door, 
asking if someone can turn the water off for me. One woman laughs uproariously. I tell her to shut up. She must be crazy to laugh at a time like this. Naked, I open the door. Can you turn off the water for me? I ask a woman standing right beside the bathroom door. Quietly, she enters. You should really put your clothes on, she says. Some of the guys saw you naked in here. I nod my head and, as she leaves, I untangle my clothes from the floor and seal them to my body. My thoughts still swirling, I step out of the bathroom. No one really talks to me. A few people say hello. I know no one here. Feeling very confused and sleepy, I ask someone where the bedroom is. They don't he answer. There are so many people in the kitchen that I can't see a thing. It is hard to get through. The hallway has a smattering of people and the bathroom is now empty. I pass a room at the front of the apartment that opens out to a small balcony, but I can't figure out what the room is used for. The living room, bare in the middle, has a stereo in the corner and two couches pushed side by side up against a wall, near the door I first came through. The floors are hard wood. I sit down on the cream-colored couch beside the dark navy couch. I notice a young white man beside me. He has dark hair, a mustache and a goatee. He wears a suit and a tie with yellow stripes. He talks with a young man with lighter hair, kind of rotund. We smile at each other. Feeling very safe from the evil spirits of my father, I relax and look around at the other people in the room. A few moments later, I hear a deep voice in my left ear. Are you a friend of the hostess? I look over and see the young man in the suit and the tie with yellow stripes who smiled at me earlier. No, I do not know anyone here, I reply. His eyes are blue. I like that, it's very exotic. We chat for a while, me on the cream-colored couch, him on the dark navy couch. After a while, it seems silly. Why don't you come sit over here? He asks when the lighter-haired young man leaves to refresh his drink. I get up and move over to sit beside him. When I sit down he almost immediately takes off his jacket and loosens his tie. I don't like wearing a suit, he says. I came here from work. He tells me about a journalist who interviewed him earlier that day about something for work. He talks about how the journalist asked stupid questions and kept trying to turn the story into what he wanted it to be rather than what the story really was about. I completely agree with you, I say. I was a journalist myself and even I have a low opinion of them. He smiles at me and says, My name is Nicholas, by the way. I roll the name around in my head. Nicholas is acceptable. I am Donna. He looks all nervous and keeps loosening his tie until it's finally off. What does that say on your shirt? He asks. I am wearing a t-shirt I received at a writer's conference in New York. It says, eerie, eerie. I have forgotten the exact meaning. I know it as in an African language and I think it means future, future, but I am not sure. It doesn't matter, I say. Well, Nicholas unbuttons the highest button on his shirt. I am just trying to make conversation and I am interested in what it means. He needs to repeat himself a few times because I can t hear him over. The loud music and voices. It doesn't matter. I refuse to give a possibly incorrect translation of eerie, eerie. It's just that. He undoes another button. 
I saw you in the bathroom and all. These guys were looking at you. I didn't want them to look at you so I shut the door. Ah HMM. I groan and wonder what else the night has in store for me. I am the one who shut the door. I nod my head and look at him. I have made the right choice to sit beside. Nicholas. The right choice is a man who will help me keep sane. Nicholas tells me that he closed the bathroom door because he likes me and finds me attractive. I find Nicholas attractive too, and it's getting too loud at the party to carry on a good conversation. Do you want to go to a cafe where we can talk? I suggest. Neither of us really knows anyone at the party and we want to get to know each other, so making a party or two seems to be the right solution. He looks pleasantly surprised. Sure, we can go to a cafe. Nicholas mulls over the idea for five minutes before he finally gets up the courage to put on his jacket and lead me to the door. I enjoy the walk with Nicholas. We both walk increasingly closer to each other. Our hands fidget in our pockets. It's a beautiful late March evening, more worthy of early summer in Montreal than early spring. As we walk, I change the cafe idea to tea at his place. I am curious about what his place looks like, and besides, I need a safe place to stay. I pop my medication and vow to keep taking it for the rest of my life. Nicholas flags a taxi. On the way, he has the driver stop at a dépanneur. He asks me if I want anything. I don't know. I wait in the taxi and Nicholas leaves and comes back like magic. I keep looking at him in the cab to make sure it's him. We have to be very quiet as we climb the steps to his apartment on the top floor of a triplex. It's a beautiful three and a half, in Montreal terms. In Toronto, it would be called a one-bedroom and it would easily cost a thousand dollars a month in rent. I don't ask, but I am sure he pays half that amount. Huge paintings fill the walls kind of rustic but they show he has a good eye. Nicholas brings me to the kitchen. Do you like the table? Yes, it's beautiful. I made it, he says. I look at him with shock. Uriah Carpenter like Jesus. Now I know he's a savior. Actually, I designed it. I picked out the pattern and the style and gave that to the people who did the physical labor. It is a beautiful table. Dark red and golden tiles make the tabletop look almost like stained glass. Uriah an artist, I say. Here. He takes my hand and leads me into the living room. It's the first time we've touched and I don't know how I feel about it. See these paintings on the walls, and the photographs? Who do you think did them? I turn to him and smile. You. He nods. They look even better now that I know he's the artist. We try to have sex. Nicholas's unprotected penis almost reaches inside my vagina but it makes me gasp. I tell him I just can't go through with it. As thankful as I am to him for taking me in, he is still a stranger and my fear of unprotected sex has helped me to live without unwanted children so far, although I am a true believer that any child born was meant to be born. Nicholas falls asleep and I roam about. I throw his black magic, woman cat outside, thinking she is possessing the apartment. I carefully study every painting and photograph on the wall, absolutely impressed. By the time morning light comes, I am convinced Nicholas is the man I have been seeking for most of my 27 years. It's Saturday, but he has to go to work for a meeting. I lie in bed while he dresses. I could stay here, 
I offer. No, I don't think that's a good idea. I'll call you later. I give him my phone numbers, at work and at home, and my padger. I don't take his number because I am angry that he would not let me stay in his apartment. By the time we step outside the triplex, after conquering the three flights of stairs, I am no longer angry and just happy at S daylight and that I can occasionally look into his blue eyes. I have no idea where we are, but it takes us about 10 minutes to walk to the subway station. Once we are on the train we have a light conversation. Nicholas says we should wait two years into our relationship and then see if it can go anywhere. He talked last night about other relationships he has had and how his work always got in the way. I told him about having bipolar disorder, and he kept encouraging me to smile. Nicholas gets off at Peel Station. He asks me what I am doing for the day, as if he expects to see me again soon. I tell him I will go home and look for a new apartment. I don't go home. I find shelter instead on the psychiatric ward of the Royal Victoria Hospital for the next 10 days. Faithful. Just before my convocation, I begin work at Radio Canada International as a producer-announcer for African Eyes, a new shortwave radio show that will air in sub-Saharan Africa. Two teams, one French and one English, the latter I am part of come up with all the stories for the new programming with the help of our Senegalese and Quebecois bosses. As I enter the Radio Canada Tower on Boulevard Nele Vest to pick up my id, a dark-haired, bright-eyed young man approaches me. Thrillace Versailles? He asks in French. Do you work here? Oui, Chile, I respond in French. Yes I will. My name is Daniel, he says, in English when he hears my accent. He extends his hand toward me. I work for Dimanche magazine. Dimanche magazine is one of the flagship shows on Radio Canada on Sunday mornings. I work for Sai, I tell him. For a show called African Eyes. It's new. We wait in line together. Daniel allows me to go ahead of him. When I have my id, I wait for him. Well, I look into his vivid green eyes. I have to go back to work. Can I call you? He asks. Wow, this guy is forward, I think, plus very cute. I give him my phone number. He phones later that day and we go out for dinner on Rue Santi Catherine. We choose a table by the window. Q-U-S-C-E-Q-U-E-Chuvales? Daniel asks me as he looks at the menu. What do you want? I remain silent and stare into his eyes. My stare forces him to look into mine. I want a man who is faithful, I tell him. I am. I'm so tired of all the failed relationships. I do not want to waste any more time. I continue, almost in anger. I want a man who will be there for me. I will be. I want a man who will listen to me and have sex with me three times a day and who will take me out to fun and interesting places. He finally smiles. I will. Daniel, I say, unsmiling. Please don't he waste my time. If you are not in this for the long term, then do not be in at all. I have no time to waste. Daniel's pale hand reaches out across the table and touches my dark one. I will not waste your time. Oh I grab his hand because I need to. I have bipolar disorder. I pause. Do you know what that is? He nods. My uncle has it too. 
Do you take your medication? I nod. All I ask, Donna, his eyes turn a darker shade of green, is to please promise me and yourself that you will always take your medication. His hand squeezes mine. My uncle almost burned down our house in Levi, Quebec. He almost killed my father. He threatened to kill my older brother, my younger brother and me my mother. I am sorry, I say. There's nothing to be sorry about. I do not do those kinds of things. Just promise me you will take your medication, he continues. My older brother is interning to be a doctor in New York. His girlfriend is a doctor up north in Quebec. I was going to be a doctor too, but I love radio. I love radio, too, I say. Do you have any other siblings? Yes, another brother. He smiles again, showing bright white teeth and a grin that reminds me of Jokey Smurf. He is studying to be an engineer. How old are you Daniel? I am 23. You're young, I say. I am surprised. The laugh lines around his eyes belie his youth. I am 27, I say. Then I ask, when is your birthday? November 26, 1976. Uriah Scorpio. He nods. When is your birthday? August 12, 1972. Uriah Leo, he says. I better not mess with you. I will be faithful. Will you take your medication? I nod. Yes, I will try. For you, I will try. Do it for yourself first, he says. Broadway. They say the neon lights are bright on Broadway. I want to know. All I want is to go to Broadway and I want to get there fast. I lost my job at Radio Canada International. With only two weeks of severance pay, money is tight. I apply for unemployment insurance and think about how to get out of my lease. I am a failure in Montreal. I want to pack it all in and move to Toronto. There I can be with my mother and sister, live in my mother's house, and think over my life. There are too many pressures here in Montreal. For the summer, my boyfriend Daniel works as a tour guide and spends a lot of time away. I miss him, and at the same time, I doubt his love for me. The walls in my living room at 8025 Rue Berry are orange. I stare at them a long time and think of Daniel. Sitting on the cream-colored eco-couch I bought because I cold tea for the dusty brown one I saw in a furniture boutique, I reach for the phone and dial a number in Niagara Falls, Ontario. Ive dialed all weekend. Budgie, Babdo, Daniel answers. Are you alone? I hiss, spritting out my words between sobs. Yes, he says. Why are you crying, Babdo? You don't he love me. I do, Babdo, I do, he says softly. Are you taking your medication? Fuck that, Daniel, I scream. This has nothing to do with my medication. You don't he love me. You are just using me. You are always away. You are never around. But Babdo, he continues in his quiet tone. I have to work. I have to pay for school. I have to help you with the rent. I know you must be upset because you lost your job. Fuck that too, Daniel, I shout and continue to cry. I don't he care. I am coming home, Babdo. I am coming home. Daniel cries now, too. I love you, Babdo. I do. It hurts me to hear you speak to me this way. 
Please try to stop shouting. Fuck you, Daniel. Ice cream. You don't he love me. You re just using me anyway. I do not want to see you again. I hang up, shaking. For hours the phone rings. That night I do not sleep. I am expected to be in Ottawa to see my godmother on the weekend but I make the decision to leave for Toronto instead. I go around my apartment, putting posted notes on the things I want moved. That was how I handled the move to the Radio Canada Tower on Boulevard Nelevesque. I wonder if I can move out first thing in the morning, maybe even tonight. I call an overnight mover to see if all my furniture and things can be moved by the next day. No. I will leave with only what I can carry and I'll call my sister Karen and ask if she can pick me up at the train station. The phone rings many, many times at my mother's house in Markham. Hello? My mother answers. Hi, Mom. Can I speak to Karen? Just a moment, Donna. I hear rustling and whispering. Donna, are you okay? My sister asks. Why? Daniel called and said you're not taking your medication. Rat, I spit out with anger. He's lying. I'm taking my medication. Well, Don, it's just that my sister is hesitant. It is important you know Karen, I interrupt. I want to come back to Toronto for a while. Good, good. Karen sounds happy and whispers something to my mother. I can hear my mother in the background. She is saying something in a happy voice. When? Karen asks. Tonight. Oh, she says, a bit surprised. Do you want me to pick you up? Yes, I say. I am taking the express train that arrives downtown at nine. Ah, Donna. The Guildwood train station would be closer. Would you mind going there? Pick me up at the Front Street train station at nine. Please, Karen. More whispering with my mom. Karen comes back on the phone. Okay Donna, she agrees. Just promise me you will call Daniel back. He is very, very upset. Bye, Karen. I will see you tonight. Bye, Don. I decide to leave most of my things to make up for the rent I owe and concentrate on packing everything I need into my three favorite black bags. Into the largest one go my designer outfits that would better fit a slightly smaller version of myself. Things like magazines, including Oprah Winfrey's first, I put in my knapsack, along with some of my own writing. My expensive mini-disc, my camera and my fit into my letter carrier gap bag. I do finally get some sleep. Fitful sleep. I dream that my mother declares bankruptcy and that she and my sister go live with my rich godmother. When I awaken, the residue of the dream brings me happiness and a sense there are good things to come. Early in the morning I trek out of my apartment with the three black bags in tow. I leave the door open and the key by my landlord's doorstep. In case I decide to stay in Montreal, I plan to check into a bed and breakfast on Rucheria, near the Schoenbrook Metro, a nice one that I saw when the culture shop team had dinner together. I struggle onto the metro with my three black bags, dragging the largest behind me. It contains my Gianfranco Fair suit I call it my Dracula suit with black velvet on the outside and red velvet on the inside, my favorite gray wool just to the knee dress from Benetton, my long cream colored wrap around knee skirt from when I worked there, my Jones New York gray wool winter coat with a huge boxer S hood, 
and my Hillary Radley Italian wool jacket with the removable faux fur lining. Whispers of not working from my lover. Wishes I could turn back the hands of time. I accidentally take the green line instead of the orange line that will take me to Shibaruk. When I switch over to the orange line, I realize that I have left behind my large bag. I backtrack to Angre Gnor, hoping to retrieve it, but it is gone. I get back on the orange line and head to Shibaruk. I arrive at the Chateau Cherrier with only my gap bag and knapsack. I ring the bell and I am let in. Are you looking for a single room? A middle-aged Quebecois man asks. I have broken up with Daniel, so I say, yes. I am only staying for a few days while I find an apartment in the plateau. He shows me to a room upstairs with no carpet on the floor and bland furniture, but it is clean. Before I settle in, I want to pay for my room. I don't have a lot of money to spend. I have to keep afloat in my bank account. I only have money for three days, I tell him, hoping I can get a deal on the room. I really have money for five. How much money do you have? He asks. One hundred dollars and that needs to cover everything for me here for three days. I cannot give you the room for so little, he says. I look at all my stuff and feel a pang for the things I have lost. All I have left for collateral is my Pontax camera, which was a gift from my mother. I pull it out of my gap bag. I will leave this camera with you, I say. You can use it to know I am good here for three days. If I default, you can keep the camera. The camera is the best it has a Pentax. He nods. I know. I stare at him with my hands on my waist. Okay, he says. But s fine. You look like a nice girl. I smile. My name is Donna. He smiles. My name is Lionel. I look around the entrance. It looks like a room from Alain Rouge, deep dark reds, deep dark oranges, heavy paisley drapes, mainly in purple, and chandeliers everywhere beautiful but a bit macabre. Lionel, how about if I redecorate for you? I venture. This hotel looks as though it could use some freshening up. Lionel laughs. You want your camera back? No, no, I lie. That's not it. Can I perhaps pay to use your computer to work on my resume and, oh, by the way, do you have internet? He laughs again. You really want your camera back? He laughs more. I thought you said you had no more money. What do you plan to pay me with? No, no, I lie. That's not it. I try again. Lionel, do you have any children? Are you married? Why are you working so late at night? He smiles. You must really want your camera back. He hands it to me, plus the keys to the room on a black plastic ring with numbers that read 3-0-2. I snatch them. I am going out soon, Lionel. Thanks. I rush to my room. Be back by nine, lady, Lionel calls out. I leave my knapsack locked in the room and walk the plateau. I decide I do not want to live in this part of the city. It is too loud. I remember I am supposed to meet my sister and I head for the train station where I book a one-way seat to Toronto on the 3.40pm train and pay for it with my visa. It is still morning. I have plenty of time to kill. I decide to do some work. Sitting outside the train station, 
on Boulevard Malevesque, I sing. They say the neon lights are bright on Broadway, and hold out my hand for change. I get a dollar. Voyaging through good and bad neighborhoods, by foot and by bus, I make it to my bank outside the Eleglise metro station and deposit the dollar. I ask them to put it in my checking savings account. Then I go to work again, this time outside Eleglise metro. I sing and dance and draw a small crowd. None of them give me money. They are older men and look unemployed. We were all in the same boat. You should create a real show, one of them says. Add music and costumes and play an instrument. I do not take his advice too kindly. I pack up my act and jump on the metro. Carrying only my gap bag, I calmly board the train heading to Guildwood. Then I remember my plans to meet my sister downtown. I call and tell her I will arrive on a different train. I have my mini-disc with me and spend most of the ride listening to interviews I recorded while working at Radio Canada. I come up with an idea to both make money and keep myself busy. I can transcribe the interviews, all with interesting people, and write a book. Being on medication keeps you regular, it keeps you sane, and it keeps you in the daily reality of your everyday life. Not taking it, I realize as I travel on the train, is not dealing with the reality of my mania. My mind is in the past, and in the future, but never really in the present moment. I listen to a conversation behind me. Two young men are talking about getting into graduate school and earning their PhDs. It is something I can relate to. Having my master's degree, I have my own PhD aspirations. They talk about the physical sciences, though physics and chemistry. That I cannot relate to because both of my degrees are in the arts, one in journalism, one in media studies. The conversation switches to something else I can relate to. The young man on the left, who I see is blonde when I turn around and look at him, explains to his friend that his father has schizophrenia. I listen to his story of growing up with his father, all that he went through, and of his father's struggles too. I put myself to work once again, this time through journalism, not song. I turn around and interrupt their conversation. Excuse me, I say. Yes? The blonde man asks. I used to work for the CBC and I still freelance for them, I begin. I am interested in your story about your father who is schizophrenic. Would you be interested in being interviewed for the CBC? Really? He asks, surprised. I nod. I smile. Well, sure, he says. That would be great. I would just need to find out if it is alright with my dad. If it is, then sure. Okay, great. I pull out my light blue ideas notebook and a pen from the inside pocket of my jacket, jot down my number and tear off the slip of paper. Here is my father's phone number. Call me there if your dad says yes. I hand him the small piece of ruled paper. Don't worry if he does or not. I will understand. As I unload from the train I chat with the two men and with some other people. I saunter away and say goodbye to a middle-aged woman and see you to the young man with the schizophrenic father. Call me, I tell him. I look for my sister. She is nowhere in sight. Carrying my gap bag, I jump into a cab. The driver and I talk about lots of things on the long ride to my mother's house. I tell him to stop off at the hotel where Daniel stays when his temporary tour guide job brings him to Toronto. Daniel is not at the hotel. He checked out last week. 
He is in Niagara Falls. I scribble fuck you in a note that I will give him when I see him next. I keep the note in my hands all the way to my mother's house. I no longer have a key to my mother's semi-detached home in Markham, so I ring the bell. She welcomes me, but I don't really want to be here. The past hurts. I enter her room that looks as gothic and museum-like as that Chateau Cherrier place in Montreal. Her room is filled with the ghosts that I grew up with. I know they should stay in the past. I should leave them in the past. But I can't stop myself. I tell her how I feel, how angry I am at her for putting up with a man who beat her for so many years. I am not taking my medication. But I lie and tell my mother I am. Something in my mother's eyes scares me, the hurt, the pain, the anguish. I rush out the door into the night with my gap bag over my shoulder. As I run down Warden Avenue, I drop the bag. The weight is too much. I desperately want to rid myself of baggage. I run to a convenience store and call my father to pick me up. I can't get hold of him. In the dark of night, I run to Finch Avenue. When I get there, I don't know what to do with myself. I have no money or aid. I threw all that away. I think about hitching a ride to my dad's house, which I've never done before, but that seems too dangerous and scares me. I see a bus. It's heading toward Finch Station. I run across the street and beg the driver to let me on. He says yes and I take a seat in the back. I am distraught, so I sing. They say the neon lights are bright on Broadway. I sing at the top of my lungs. They say the neon lights can fill the air. People seem to be happy and one guy, white, even tells me to sing on sister. So. I do. The bus reaches the subway station. I stand dancing as I walk to the door. Shut up. A tall black man shouts. You shut the fuck up, I yell back. Heard that he does her and he think I sound like Whitney Houston. Miguana put a gunshot in your head if yana shut up, I shout in patois. Shaking his head, he backs away and sits down until I step off. I sing on the subway, too, getting through Toronto's transit system with no problems. At first I sing sitting down and, and then I walk through the cars singing, hoping to get change. Nobody gives me any, so I get off at the Lawrence East subway station. I'm frightened here. I have no idea where to go. From a phone booth, I call my dad again. He answers this time. I ask him to meet me at the corner opposite the coffee time at Yonge Street and Lawrence Avenue. I try to wait patiently. My dad said he would be about half an hour. As I wait, I take my performance to the streets. I sing and draw a crowd of teenagers. Plus, I do a little performance art for them. I get a standing ovation but the show exhausts me. My father has still not arrived and I have no money in my pockets. I walk alongside a park and think about sleeping in the bushes for the night. But I get scared and hail a cab. I thank the driver for stopping and tell him I want to go to New York, to Broadway. I have no money, I say, but I do have a friend there in Spanish Harlem. She will pay my fare when we get there. She s married and is a cat and a great job. I figure I can crash at her place and I can pay her back later. The cab driver does not want to go. He decides not to take me anywhere and leaves me alone on the dark streets of Toronto. I am afraid and manic at the same time. 
I see a lovely apartment building and try to find shelter there. The concierge lets me in. I tell him I want a job as a door woman. He turns me down but he does give me some cigarettes. I sit outside the building and smoke. I will wait until morning and when the manager comes I will ask him for a job. My plan does not last long. I walk back to the corner of Yonge and Lawrence, weary of every man looking at me. My hair is in an extension with a weave at the end, and even in my state, I look like a hot mama. I enter the coffee time and get free day old bijoux and a coffee from the kind South Asian owner. I look like such a hot mama that I attract the attention of an old Greek man as I sing at the counter. He beckons me over. I tell him to wait until I finish my song. His name is Cyril and I find out we are a fellow alumni from Concordia University, which was called Sir George Williams in his time. He is an engineer and fascinating to talk to. He worked in Tanzania for eight years and we talk a lot about Africa. We also talk about life in general. I feel very confused about where to direct my anger at the injustices in the world, the injustice of having a crazy family, the injustice of being out of work with my education and my credentials, and the injustice of having a boyfriend who does not really love me. Cyril explains it this way, there is a balance in life. There are no winners or losers. Who wins and who loses is a game. It is just a game. The focus must be on balance. This is music to my ears. The loony spin. Daniel and I make up and move in together in Montreal. At first we have sex three times a day. Every time he departs the house, Daniel leaves scraps of paper with a note for me. Just gone to the grocery store, Babdo. Be back soon. Left $10 in your purse, Babdo. Please buy us some bread for dinner. There was a phone call for you, Babdo. The number is on the machine. Daniel graduates from McGill University and starts a postgraduate certificate in journalism at Laval University in Quebec City. He visits me on weekends at our apartment in the Villeray neighborhood. It is madness when Daniel is gone. I don't sleep. I exercise too much. It wears me down. I end up in a hospital in Toronto, after I walk most of the way there. In the hospital, I meet Frank. Round and slightly bald with grey hair, he is very different from me. He wears all white as he walks down the hall, looking like a big cherub with his very pale skin. I am dark skin and hair and I am tall and more voluptuous than fat. We look like absolute opposites. But we are similar, too. Frank gives me a flower from the front counter of the sitch ward. I reject it at first, but I love flowers and they are very important to me, so I accept it and thank him. I am in the acute care ward. Frank is in the able to roam free ward. Through a glass window we end up seducing each other. We play a game of show me yours and I'll show you mine. It starts when I show Frank my leg. He shows me his leg. Then I show him my shoulder. He shows me his shoulder. I show him my breasts. He shows me his pecs. He is such a fat man that his pecs almost look as big as my breasts. Then I show him my pubic hair. He shows me his penis. The courtship is on. When they transfer me out of the acute care ward, I end up in the room that Frank was in, but he has left the hospital. He fought with the help of a lawyer to get out. Frank visits me. He insists that I need to get out of the hospital. Other friends and family visit, too. Evan Daniel comes.
I do not want to go back home to Montreal. I do not want to go to my dad's either. There was a robbery at his house. The robbers had a gun. They hit my dad over the head with the gun, and now I am terrified to stay there. So I see.